morning, uh, I was I had the privilege of of preaching at a church uh, this afternoon. I had another privilege of preaching at a church. And so this is the third sermon. But Steve asked me to preach a sermon that is actually part of your series. And so usually pastors kind of cheat a little bit. We usually preach a sermon that we've preached before. Uh, this time, though, because of Steve's request, I'm preaching you a sermon. Even though I preached this before, actually I preached it two weeks ago in our church, uh, it was actually the very same theme. So I think this is what God wants us to hear. And so I want to uh, uh, begin by having you turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be using this as our, our, our main text, text uh, this evening. And, uh, and as you turn there, we're going to look at, uh, in a little bit, uh, verses um, uh, 15 and 16. Before we look there, um, 1 Timothy chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy Chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and, uh, verse 16, I think. Okay, let me see. Trying to figure out where my verses are. Okay, good. Yeah, verse 16. All right. So the question that I want to ask you is this. How do you know something? In other words, how do you know something is real? You see, one of the challenges of, of knowledge is that our knowledge is limited, isn't it? Because what you know and what I know may only be part of the greater knowledge. And so as a result, what ends up happening is that our knowledge becomes opinion. And when we talk about sort of, well, what do you think about God? Have you ever asked that question? And, and everybody in a circle kind of gives you their impression of what God is like. And I think one of the dangers of living in a world in which sort of opinion becomes the reigning authority it becomes dangerous, doesn't it? Because what ends up happening is your opinion is no greater than somebody else's opinion. And so what ends up at the end of the day is that we don't know what truth is. And you think about this. Uh, I, one day I was driving my daughter to school. And as we were driving, we are having this conversation. And my daughter made a statement. And I said, um, I think your statement is wrong. I forgot what she was talking about. And I said, I think your statement is wrong. And she goes, no, daddy, that's my opinion. And I go, so? I think your, your opinion is wrong. <laughs> and she looks at me, no, my opinion is my opinion. And no opinions are wrong. I thought to myself, huh. Well, if you have an opinion that you can sort of murder people, well, that, that's a wrong opinion. Because there's something about that statement in itself is wrong. And here's the problem, though. If there is no authority then how do you judge what is right and what is wrong? And that's what we talk about as being relativism. And that is the reigning, uh, prevailing mindset of our culture. And, you know, knowledge is important, isn't it? Uh, I remember hearing a story about a guy named Charles Steinmetz. Uh, Charles Steinmetz was an electrical engineer. Uh, he was of, of towering intellect. And after he retired, he was asked by this major appliance manufacturer to locate a malfunction in the electrical system. And none of the other manufacturer experts have been able to locate the problem. Steinman spent some time walking around and testing the various parts of the particular part of one machine. And within like about 10, 15 minutes, the, uh, he was able to diagnose the exact defect in the, in the place because he understood this, this machine. So he put a little check mark next to that defect. Some days later, the manufacturers uh, received a bill for Steinmetz for his work. And the bill was marked for $10,000 for 10 minutes of work. They protested the amount and said, 
they asked him how to itemize what you just did. And he sent back, sent back an itemized bill. And this is what he put. Marking one chalk mark, $1. Knowing where to place it, $9,999. Knowledge is valuable, isn't it? When you know something, it actually is, is, is so valuable. You know exactly what to do and where to go. Well, one of the challenges of our generation is that, again, we don't, uh, we, we have this sort of problem with knowledge. In the whole field of philosophy, there's what they call epistemology. How do you know something is real? And it's getting scary now, isn't it? Because in, in some sense, our reality is, is something that we devise. And so the question for us is because knowledge is so subjective, where do we rely upon? And I know that in the last uh, few weeks, uh, Pastor uh, Steve has been walking you through this whole idea of the importance of the Word of God. And for us as Christians, we uh, claim a knowledge that is beyond us. In other words, that is knowledge that has been revealed to us. And that's what we call revelation. So the Bible is the revelation of God. It's the revealing of himself to us. And we call that a special revelation because God has specially revealed his will and the world around us. So our reality as Christians is decided or determined by the reality that God has ascribed. That's why for Christians... The authority of the Bible is so important because it is not some opinion that we make. It is based upon the authority of God himself. And so we want to talk about what that looks like. But sort of to set the, the background of this, we're going to talk about the sufficiency of God's word and what that means. Because there are different aspects to understanding God's word. Uh, we understand the authority of God's word. We understand the revelation. But let me just walk you through kind of what God's word is. See, because God is the creator, he has revealed himself to us. And there are two ways that he's revealed to us. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 19. And it says this. And this is the, the, the classic text in scripture describing God's revealing of himself to us. So how do we know that God exists? That's the question that a lot of people ask, especially in our day. Uh, how do we know that God's existence is real? Well, Psalm 19 verse 1 says this. That the heavens declare... The glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where his voice is not heard. And so we see that the first uh, sort of glimpse of God's revealing of himself is in his own creation. So if you think about it, God's creation is his revelation to all mankind. And because he's revealed himself through the universe or to nature, all of us are accountable to God. Now, that's a pretty radical statement. You know, in almost every culture, in every people group, there is a belief in something that is bigger than themselves. And one, re way, one reason why people believe that is because God has revealed himself in the very creation around us. We talk about the beach. Uh, Steve mentioned that question. What's your favorite beach? There's no better place, I think. Then when you go into nature and you begin to look at the wonder of nature, uh, 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 you know, going to a beach and you hearing the waves and seeing the sky, it, it, you begin to ask the question, especially when you look at the stars, there must be something more than just what I see. There mu it, this thing is too beautiful to just happen by chance. And that's what Psalm 19 says, that the psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. 
day after day they bring forth speech. And, and then it goes out in verse uh, 4. Their voice goes into all the earth. The words for the ends of the world. In heavens he has picked a tent for the, tent, for the sun. Which is like a bridegroom coming from uh, above his pavilion. And so we see the beauty of nature itself. But is that enough? Is God's revealing of himself just in nature enough? And that's where we as humans say, no, of course that's not enough. Because then, then you know, then how do we know what God uh, is really like? It's, is he just nature himself? And this is why throughout history, there have been people, the number one object of worship has been nature. Because in some sense, they, they want to, like, admire the beauty of, of the creation around them, but they have no idea who that creator is until God himself reveals himself to us. And so notice what the psalmist says. And this is the beauty of God's word. He goes on and he says... In, the, in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So what the Old Testament reminds us is this. There are two forms of revelation. Nature itself, so all of us are accountable before God. But then there's, there's a second part. To revelation, which is special. And that special revelation is the word of God. Is God speaking to us. So what the Bible in its essence is, literally are the words of God spoken. And so in this book, we understand reality. In this book, we understand humanity. In this, word, uh, in this book, we understand why people do what they do. We understand this concept of, of, a, of a God who loves us, who created us in his image, and that our rebellion to that God is what the Bible defines as sin. And that our true sense of, of, of a connection to God is through this, this relationship that we call salvation. And so the Bible becomes God's complete revelation from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And as Christians, we define our reality for, from God's revelation. That is something that all of us sort of know in Scripture, is that the word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. But here's the thing about God's word. Not only is it important that it, he revealed to us, it's also important to realize that his word gives to us the sufficiency to live our lives. That everything that we believe and live by is, is in the word of God. I believe that the Bible is the most important book, not because it is just a book that was written many years ago. It is the essence of life itself, that to understand the true nature of humanity, to understand the true nature of God, it is not a subjective opinion, but an objective reality of who God is. And so for a Christian, does it make a difference that we understand the Bible? Francis Schaeffer, many years ago, a Christian apologist, says, does it make a difference? The difference is that the Bible being what it is, God's word, so absolute, objective truth, that we should not be caught in this ever-changing culture around us, which is around us. Now, here's the practical implication of that. If God's word is truly true, and we live by it, then the sense of meaning and purpose comes out of this book. That if we truly want to understand what joy and happiness and, and the very essence of, of, of human sense of, of, of satisfaction comes from, the Bible then defines it for us. And so one of the things that we want to talk about now is the sufficiency. That the Bible is not just a book about God. 
It is the book in which that book is now revealed to us so that we can live our lives in every aspect of our lives. That every single thing that we do is impacted by God's revelation. So I want to help you kind of uh, understand. Uh, uh, we're going to go through a, a, a definition of, of sufficiency. So not only is God's word authoritative, it is sufficient. And here's what we mean by sufficiency. Sufficiency basically is the scriptures are sufficient in the sense that they are the only inspired and inerrant words of God that we need in order to know the way of salvation and the way of obedience. So the Bible is the complete revelation of God that leads us to eternal life, but not only to eternal life. It also leads to an obedient life, a happy life, a life of satisfaction, a life of meaning, a life of purpose. God's book is the book that defines that for us. So if you think about it, if you're not living in obedience to the word of God, your life becomes meaningless and then there's a sense of emptiness, a sense of void. But our true joy and satisfaction comes because God's word is sufficient. So it's sufficient for how you treat your wives, how you raise your children, how you go on dates, how you get a job, how you work at your job. All these things are connected to the Word of God. Now, the Bible doesn't speak on every subject, but the Bible addresses every subject in the way in which we should live. And so that's what the sufficiency of the Word of God is. It is, the, it is God's inspired Word which helps us to live our lives accordingly so in the way of salvation as well in obedience. And so we want to look at one text that helps us understand the comprehensive nature of what God's word does. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul is writing this uh, to remind Timothy the importance of the salvation that was preached to him. So I'm going to read this passage and let's go back to that text. And Paul is writing to this young boy named Timothy. Now he's a little bit older. Paul had um, ministered uh, in the city, Ephesus. And there was a woman named Lo Lois and Eunice, uh, mother and daughter, who had a son. His name was Timothy. And Timothy was half Jew, half Gentile. And there's a whole story in the book of Acts about, about Timothy because he was half Jew, half Gentile. Uh, there was, uh, you know, how does uh, a Gentile uh, become a, a Christian? And so uh, we know that from the story of Timothy, that Timothy at, at, at a very early age was taught by not only his mom but his grandma on the way of Scripture. And in verse 15 it says this, And how from infancy you have made known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we see is this. If you want to know ultimate reality, ultimate eternity, the way in which we understand that, that comes from God's revelation to us. That's number one. But then he begins to say this. He moves from the way of salvation to the way of life. That scripture is sufficient for every aspect of living and so in verse 16 he says all scripture is God breathed literally the word there is inspired it comes out of the mouth of God it means that it is it, because it comes out of the mouth of God is authoritative and it says this and it's useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness and then in verse 17 it says that God gives us this word so that Every one of us 
can be equipped for every good work. So what I want to do today is I want to kind of expound on this passage as well as uh, cover a few other things. And just to give you some practical principles to think about. Number one, God's word gives us the instruction for how we live and how we grow. God's word gives us instruction for how we live and how we grow. And notice this, what he says. As he's thanking, um, uh, as he's reminding Timothy that you grew up in the Holy Scriptures. First of all, he says is that the Bible is, is without error. In other words, really, everything of the, of the Bible is complete. The law of the Lord is perfect. Every aspect of God's word is, is, is correct. Now, some of you may say, well, well we, do we have the actual, um, you know, the original manuscripts? And, of course, we don't. They were written uh, many years ago. But here's what we do have. God, in his infinite wisdom, disseminated all these different texts that if you collect all the texts together, what's, what's remarkable about Scripture and the remarkable aspect of God's preservation of Scripture is that if you compare all these texts and you put it together, that there is an accuracy of, of, of like 99.7% accuracy. Even though we don't have the exact words of God, because the way in which God has disseminated all these different texts, that we put it together, we have a pretty accurate understanding of what God says. And it's important for us as Christians to remember that. That the Bible is not some man-made book that some guy decided to write. The Bible is not written by one person. It's actually written by a collection of people through a, 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 a four or five thousand a period of history. And what makes the Bible remarkable versus any other literature is that there is a cohesiveness. There is a unity in Scripture. There, there is a, a beginning in the end. And you think about this. The Bible is complete. That you think about how humanity began. We see this in, in Genesis. But not only does the Bible begin with how humanity be, uh, uh, begins, it also ends with how humanity ends. So God knew all of human history is actually written in this book. So if you want to see sort of the glimpse of what the future is going to be like, the Bible reveals that to us. Because God knows that, that, that that's where truth is derived from understanding God's ultimate plan. So here's what scripture does. One, it gives us the pathway to salvation. And salvation is, is that all of you, many of you know, is, is, is the thing that really brings us into a relationship with God. And so sin is what the Bible describes as separation from God. And what scripture does is now creates a pathway in which we are back to reunited with God. So number one, is that scripture so it's sufficient for salvation. That everything you need to know about how to be saved is in the word of God. It tells us what we need to do. And here's the beautiful thing about salvation. This is going to blow your mind, right? You don't have to earn it. Because if you think about it from a human logical perspective, how do you get something? You work at it. You, you labor at it. And the more you work the more you accomplish, right? I grew up in a family where you had to work hard uh, to be approved by your parents. If you got, didn't get straight A's or if you, you know, whatever the best scores are, then your parents looked down on you. Because in many of our cultures, our acceptance is determined by our achievement. But the Bible says something totally different. 
The Bible says this, that all of us have sinned and are separated from God. We have willfully chosen to run away from God. Even if we ran away from God, here's what the Bible gives to us as the solution. Rather than us making up for all of our sins and trespasses, God says, I'm going to make it up for you. Instead of you pursuing me, I'm going to pursue you. The most beautiful message of, of the Bible is this, that God in his love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we are still in the state of rebellion, God receives us, accepts us. It goes counter to human nature. It goes counter to everything about the way in which this world operates. And so it makes us wise for salvation. It makes us appreciate this, this beautiful story of true love and grace. And if you think about it deep down inside, that true love is manifested through an act of sacrifice where somebody's willing to give you something every aspect of their life. And that's what the whole salvationist story is about. And we see this in the person of Jesus Christ. So we see that, that the Bible is sufficient for understanding salvation, that it is not through the works of our good works that we attain salvation, but it's simply the acknowledgement of our separation from God and our uh, acceptance of God's provision for us. That's Jesus Christ. But here's where Jesus, where the Bible continues on. Not only does it tell us how to be saved, the second part about this is that it teaches us what is right. Notice this in verse 16. It says, all scripture is, in, is God-breathed or inspired and is useful for teaching. The word teaching there, by the way, uh, in the Greek simply means what is right. It is, is the rule of law. In other words, it tells us which direction to go. And so the Bible teaches us about what is right about God. It teaches us what is right about ourselves. And it teaches us how to live our lives correctly. And so throughout Scripture, the more you understand it, the more you understand that there is a certain code of behavior, right? Even though that code of behavior doesn't save us, there's still a code of behavior to honor one another, to love one another, don't lie to one another. This is something that the Bible teaches us. And so the more you follow the precepts of Scripture, the more you find a sense of meaning. A sense of happiness, a sense of joy that comes out of it. But here's the second thing about the Bible. Not only does it teach us what is right, second thing he says is this. It rebukes us. Here is where the Bible not only tells us what is right, it tells us what is not right. In other words, it rebukes us. It tells us, hey, don't do that. Don't, don't take advantage of somebody. Don't steal. Don't covet. The Bible rebukes us and tells us that our life, the way in which we're living our lives, is actually a road to destruction. And so when we go through the Bible, we see stories of, of, of men who have replaced God for something else. And it's an example for us. And every person in the Bible is an example for us in terms of how to live our lives rightly or how to not live our lives rightly. And so the Bible is a book. And this is why a lot of people have a hard time with it. When you read it, there are things that, that it, it challenges the way you live. And so there are certain things that the Bible says don't do. It's like our culture says, hey, that's, that's totally acceptable. But it rebukes us because that is the way of death. And that is the way of destruction. 
But here's the third thing that the Bible does. And, and it's very important to understand that when Paul is writing these words, he, he's writing in sequence. He's helping us understand. Not only the Bible tells us, it's like when you're teaching kids what to do. And then it's like when you talk to kids, not what to do. But here's the third thing about the Bible. It not just uh, teaches us, corrects us, but it also corrects us. You know what the idea of correction is? The idea of correction is when you are being rebuked, what is wrong? It tells us how to get right again. It tells us which way to go. It straightens our lives again. So the Bible doesn't leave us hanging. It will, you, know, uh, you know, be nice to somebody. And then if you're nice to somebody, not nice to somebody, the Bible just doesn't rebuke us. He also tells us how we can be nice again. And so there is a continuation. The, the, the word there, by the way, in Greek is the, the same word that we get for uh, um, orthodontist or uh, braces, right? It's the thing that straightens out uh, uh, sort of uh, crooked teeth. And that's what the Bible does. It helps us to get our lives on track again. It corrects us. But then it doesn't stop there. The next word he uses is, is important. Not only does it teach us, not only tells us what is wrong, it rebukes us, not only does it tell us how to get right, lastly, it trains us in righteousness. In, a, in other words, that the word of God allows us to continue to grow and to mature. It tells us how to stay right. Now, the thing about the Bible is that it is a book in which as we study it, sometimes when you read it, it's like, oh, man, it, it convicts me. But it tells us, okay, if you keep on doing this right thing, that the things that you desire in this world, those things are, are going to fade. The Word of God is so powerful that it changes our minds. It changes our desires. Now, think about this. How does one change? How does one tr get transformed? Right? So Paul says in this Romans chapter 12, uh, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And then in verse 2, he says, the first act of salvation is you present yourself before God. That's the true act of worship. But then he says this, be transformed by what? The renewing of your what? Mind. And so what the Word of God does, it transforms our thinking about humanity. It changes our thinking about other people. So where human nature says, okay, somebody says something bad to you, human nature says go out and, and say something bad to them. God says, no. It changes our understanding of justice, of social justice, of those who have done us wrong. Instead of going back and killing them, we show, demonstrate to them compassion and grace. You know, the thing about the Word of God that is, is sometimes um, different is that uh, there are times where I have been convicted that it is within my legal right to do something that I chose not to do. I, I'll tell you a recent illustration that happened. Uh, we were renting a house, and in this house, um, uh, we, in, in the United States, you give what they call a security deposit. Do you guys do that here? You, you give some money, and at the end of, that, um, at end of that term, they give you that security deposit back, minus all the repairs and all that. Well, so we had cleaned the house. We had brought in cleaners. We had cleaned all the carpet, and, and we were going to, uh, we made it just look like exactly what uh, it looked like. Well, uh, the lady uh, called us uh, a few weeks later and said, oh, I'm sorry, but I'm going to take $1,000 out. 
I said, $1,000, that's a lot of money. Uh, she was supposed to give us like $6,000 back. She, I'm going to take $1,000. And I go, why? And she said, the carpet wasn't clean enough. I said, you were there when the new carpet cleaner came. And then uh, I, I said, you can't do that. And then, that's, then the, the, uh, a few days later, she calls me back and she says, um, no, the house wasn't clean enough, so I'm going to take another $1,000 off. And then, and then she said, so I, we argued against that. And I said, no, no, it was clean. You were there. And so she was trying to figure out how to take another $1,000 from us. And then finally she called us back another week later and said, oh, I decided, you know, the outside, uh, the, the plants are all dead. It's your fault. I go, the plants were like that before we came. Uh, how can you blame us for that? And so uh, we wrote her a letter, and, and uh, she still took $1,000 off. Now, I had a couple of options. Legally in America, uh, you know, the, the law is more for the tenants than for the owners. Yeah. I think it's like that here too, right? And so I could have easily sued. It. There, it's within my right to sue. And I was thinking, okay, I talked to some attorneys. Okay, you know, I, she, what she's doing is absolutely wrong. And, it, and it, it's within my right. But as I was praying and I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's a pastor, and he said, you know, Ray, there you could fight this and win, but you could also let it go. Because there's a verse in the Bible that says vengeance is mine. you got to just trust that God would do it. Now, in, in certain cases, of course, it's, it's absolutely right. But God was speaking to my heart. He was convicting me to let it go. And that's the thing that the Bible does. Is sometimes it goes against kind of our human intuition. I could have fought it and won and all that. But there's a part of me that, that I want to display what Christian... Compassion would look like or grace would look like. And so when the Bible becomes real, what it does is that it changes and reshapes our thinking. Now, I know there are some of you in this room that are thinking, Pastor, you should have sued. I would have sued. <laughs> and you're getting really upset with me. And you know what? In a, from a human perspective, I, I, you know, I think maybe I shouldn't. But I, I felt at peace with that because ultimately, even if she does injustice to me, that the Bible reminds me that, that ultimately God is the authority, and the God is the ultimate judge. Who knows? Maybe out of this situation, this woman will come to know Jesus. And, and, and that's what the Bible does. It tells us how to be trained so that we live lives, that it, it transforms the way we think and the way we act. So rather than be people who are selfish, we are people that are generous. Rather than people that are angry and vengeful, we are people that are forgiving and kind. That's the power of the Word of God. It transforms us. And that's why the Bible is sufficient for all things. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that says that the Word of God is living and sharper. And the first area that the Word of God should challenge us is our own hearts. It's easy to use the Bible to condemn other people. But the more I read the Bible, the, the more I realize that the Bible is like a scalpel that a surgeon has. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of the soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. You know how our lives get right with God? Is that first God's word has to do surgery in our own hearts. And it convicts of our own self-righteousness. It convicts us of, of our own attitudes. And the more we immerse ourselves in God's word the more God's word becomes real to us. And so I want to challenge you to think, is the Bible 
all sufficient for you? Is the Bible something that, that you believe in that can answer, at least maybe not, it's not going to answer every question. You know, how can I be a better athlete? The Bible's not going to talk about that. But it will tell you how in the midst of competition you can act and treat your competitor. The Bible might tell us all aspects of science or history. The Bible's not designed for that per se, but it gives us the basic principles to help discern all that. That's why the Bible is sufficient for you when you're single and you're dating somebody. How do you treat that other person? Do you take advantage of them for your own selfish needs? Or do you treat them with honor and respect, the Bible says, to treat another woman as your sister or as your brother? The Bible is sufficient for us in terms of how do we raise our kids, how to nurture them, how to teach them, how to inspire them. The Bible is sufficient for how you handle your coworkers when they say mean things about you, even though it's not true. The Bible is sufficient for all things. And because the Bible is sufficient, it changes our lives. So as we close our time, I want to share that, you know, the, this book is not just a book that we've been given. So that it's it just another thing we do. It's the handbook of life. And when we talk about the sufficiency of God, what we're talking about at the very core is that everything that we know to, to live, is in this book. And lastly, this is the most transformational book. Not only does it change an individual, it transforms communities and cities and even nations. There's a great story about uh, one of the uh, many years ago. I think somebody was talking to me about Captain Cook. You guys all know Captain Cook, right? Uh, you know, that, that one of the, uh, the ships that there was a, the story called Mutiny and the Bounty where there was a mutiny. And one of the, the leaders was actually thrown on this island. It was, and, and in this island, all this man had was uh, these people in the island and he had the word of God. And it was, it was a, it's a true story where he starts teaching the people. He was kind of stranded on the silence. He was teaching the people, people the Bible. And a society that had been living sort of in cannibalism and in and, 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 and murder, they started developing an ethical system. And as a result, when people came back many, many years later to go back to this island, what they found was a society in which there was love and respect and giving away. Rather than trying to, to murder each other, there was a sense of forgiveness that prevailed. All because that the word of God transformed this man and the, and the little island that he was on. When I read that story, I said, you know what? The problem is not that the word of God is not powerful. The problem is that we don't believe in the power of the word of God. So I want to challenge you that God's word is sufficient for every aspect of our, our lives. And, and the more we study it, the more we know it. And, and those of us who don't know it, then we study it even more. And I want to encourage you that through that transformation that takes place here at the chapel, we'll begin the transformation, the ripple effect of transforming the city, this country, and hopefully the world. Let's pray.